Welcome to the Yukon RUF podcast. RUF at Yukon is a ministry that relies completely on the financial support of churches and individuals like you in order to serve the Yukon community. You can support RUF at Yukon by going to ruf.org slash Yukon. Guys, um, my name is Lucas, for those that I have not met or don't know well, and I'm just really glad you're here. I'm thankful that you came. I know that you could be studying or cramming for a test tomorrow or just sleeping or something like that. So uh, it's really good to have you. And, you know, RUF, uh, we want to be a community uh, that's centered around Jesus. And what that means is that all are welcome, uh, no matter where, what they think about Jesus, to come and uh, examine who this Jesus is as we look at uh, the Bible. And it's my hope that those who are Christians would come here and grow in their love for him and uh, their service to him. So um, this semester, we've been going through the series where we just take on a passage in the Gospel of Mark and kind of work through it and uh, see this account of Jesus's ministry and his life and who he was and what he did. And today we're going to come to, this is one of the most like central passages really in the gospel of Mark, uh, this account of Jesus. And so uh, I'm excited to share it with you. So uh, let's look at it. I'll read it for us. Uh, This is after Jesus has been doing Lots of amazing things and gathering crowds and uh, gathering his disciples, his kind of inner ring. And uh, it picks up in verse 27 of chapter 8 here. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, by the way. Uh, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Okay, let's pray again. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we now come to this word, uh, send us your spirit to guide us and change us, applying it to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I heard a story this week about a woman named Karen. And Karen uh, was married to a man who was a student. He was actually studying to be a pastor in seminary. And so uh, they had kids and Karen was like the work, she was working so that her husband could take these classes and so they could provide for their kids. And uh, she had a really good job in quality control at a big pharmaceutical company. And uh, in the course of her work, there was a big order of syringes. So one of the things her company made was syringes. And this order in the production process had been messed up and contaminated. And she was the one in charge of like inspecting and giving, signing off that these are good. And she failed them. So this massive quantity of syringes worth tons of money. And she said, no, these were contaminated. We can't sell these and she was called into her boss's office and he was like you really just need to there's too much money at stake you really just need to sign like she was the only one who could sign off and say that these were okay to sell and he was like you really need to there's too much money at stake and she said I can't do that they're not safe they're not good and he said well your job will be at stake if you don't and she said okay fine I still am not going to sign. You can fire me. And she was fired. And, you know, she had a family with kids. Uh, She had kids. And, you know, it was not clear where money would come from after that. Thankfully, other things came along. But I want you to think about the boss and think about Karen. Like, the boss thinks this is a no-brainer, right? It's just like too much money is at stake. Your future is at, like your family is at stake. Just sign. It doesn't matter if it's dishonest. But for Karen, it's not a no-brainer at all. And I want you to think about why. Like why could two people have totally different perspectives? And I want to suggest to you that the reason is because they had different visions of what the good life is. Uh, So the assumption behind the boss is like the good life is providing abundantly for your family and you will choose that, obviously. And for this woman, Karen, it was like, no, there's more to the good life than that. And this, this is a passage about the good life. This is a passage about God's good plan for us and how it differs starkly from the plans we might make. And it's ultimately about how desperately we need God's way, God's plan, God's vision of the good life in order to thrive in his world. And just often, this is kind of an intense passage in a lot of ways. Like if this were acted out, this would be heated. Uh, Mark, who wrote this, uh, uses the word rebuke a couple of times. And rebuke, we don't use, I bet many of you have never used the word rebuke before in your life, right? Uh, it's not a word we use, but what you need to know about it is it's a really strong word. Uh, in the Bible, it's, we see it when Jesus, uh, he rebukes demons in the Bible. And uh, so these are really heated discussions. And essentially to rebuke is like a really, a really strong way of being like, no, stop it. Kind of like, the, you know, the best example, modern example I can give is for any Office fans, when Toby returns to the office after being gone for a while and Michael is like, no, stop it, no, no. That's what, so when you hear rebuke in this passage, that's what you need to think, it's strong, okay? And I want us to look at the rebukes in this passage. I want to look first at why Peter rebukes Jesus and then why Jesus rebukes Peter. And finally, I want to look at Jesus' message for all disciples. So 
Uh, first of all, why Peter rebukes Jesus. Uh, at the beginning of this passage, Jesus has been traveling with his disciples, and he's been teaching them about what he calls the kingdom of God. And along the way, he asks, uh, well, so guy, like you've been traveling with me for a while. Who do people say that I am? And they answer, and they say, some say John the Baptist, uh, like raised from the dead. And some say the former prophet Elijah reincarnated or something like that. So people have these different views, and maybe Jesus is one of the prophets. And Jesus says, yeah, okay, yeah, that's what all the people say. But who do you say that I am? And Peter, the disciple Peter, says, I know who you are. You're the, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, yeah, don't tell anyone. Uh, because, and he says, because I'm going to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And when Peter hears about this stuff, uh, about Jesus suffering and dying, it says that Peter rebukes Jesus. So Peter's like strongly rebuking Jesus. Now, why does he do that? It has to do with the word Christ, actually, and what that means. And when we hear Christ, usually we think like Jesus' last name, right? Jesus Christ. Uh, but uh, what it actually means is the anointed one. It's a, trans- it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And in those days, you would anoint like a king uh, with oil. And it was this symbolic uh, action that you would take for a priest or a king or a prophet, setting them apart for this work that they're going to do. But... Uh, in Israel at that time, there was an expectation that the anointed one was going to come. And this was the anointed one from God who had set everything right. And the expectation at that time was that uh, particularly what needed to be set right was that Rome was like the Roman Empire controlled Israel. And so the expectation was the, the anointed one, the Christ, when he comes, is going to defeat Rome, and he's going to establish us, Israel, as the world superpower. So when Peter says, like, Jesus, you're the Christ, he's thinking about the good life. He's thinking about the life where his people are free, and he is free. Life is good. By the way, he's like Jesus' second in command now, right? Like, he's Jesus' boy, and Jesus is the Christ. And then when Jesus starts talking about suffering and dying, that doesn't fit at all with Peter's vision of the good life. In Peter's mind, it's the exact opposite of what was supposed to happen. Uh, And so he rebukes Jesus. Uh, We live 2,000 years after this. Uh, We're not worried about the Roman Empire anymore. Uh, But we are a lot like Peter. Uh, If you were to ask UConn students what they want, they would all probably give some version of what Peter wants. You know, we all desperately want to be free and want to have a good life. We want to not have many cares and live freely. Uh, what I hear UConn you, students like you say a lot of times is, a lot of the times like, you know, I want to be set. Or like, you know, so-and-so is set. Isn't that what we want? We just want to be set. And just like Peter, the difficulty we, we have with following Jesus is that we want to hold on to our freedom and this idea of, that we have of the good life, and it seems to get in the way. And Jesus seems to get in the way of that. So that's why Peter rebukes Jesus. But I want to look now at why Jesus rebukes Peter. Uh, So in verse 33 up here, Peter is rebuking Jesus. And uh, because Jesus is saying, Jesus is like, I'm going to suffer and die. But then Jesus, Peter's like, no. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, which is a crazy thing to say, right? And, And it's a way of saying, in other words, like, Peter, the way you are thinking right now is actually satanic. 
satanic. And he says that Peter has got his mind on the things of man instead of on the things of God. Now, what's he talking about? Uh, what Peter does not see is that he's actually not free. And even if he got everything he wanted, he still wouldn't be free because his vision of the good life owns him. So much so that it makes him rebuke God himself. Like, who does that, right? What are you living for? I think we all essentially kind of want the same thing, and it's not even that extravagant. Uh, We want to live comfortably, right? We want to have someone who loves us, maybe, have a good job, maybe, maybe a family, go on vacations, things like this. And that's all great stuff. Like, those things are not bad. But what I want you to see is if you build your life on that stuff, if your life is only meaningful with that stuff, then you're in a very dangerous position. Because when that life begins to get threatened, your world gets flipped upside down. And you'll see that that life actually owns you. Uh, For instance, you freak out, right? You get dumped. Or your crush doesn't like you back. uh, And you freak out. Uh, When you spend Friday night alone, when you don't get the internship, or when you have to change majors, when you get a bad grade, uh, when money gets tight, whatever it is, you guys, I'm, I'm sure many of you struggle with anxiety. I struggle with anxiety a lot. It's horrible, right? Like being really anxious. And it's probably, when we're anxious, when we're really anxious, it's probably related to our vision of the good life being threatened. Or maybe some of us struggle with anger, right? It's crazy. Like we think like, where did, like we lash out in anger and then we think like, where did that come from? Oh my gosh. And what I want us to see is it probably came from our vision of the good life being threatened some way. Uh, Maybe you struggle to love people and make time for people, which is an important thing to do. And if you struggle with that, it might be because you're consumed by your vision of what the good life is for you. And even if you get all the stuff, right, and plenty of people get all the stuff, uh, it still has the potential to own you because once you have it, you have to preserve it. It can always be threatened. Nothing is ever enough. And so what we typically think of going along our lives freely, along with our lives freely, is actually a form of slavery. And according to Jesus, it's a slavery that can steal your soul, actually. And so Peter's vision of the good life owns him so much that he actually freaks out on Jesus himself, God himself, uh, when it gets threatened. Like, think about that. What on earth would make anyone rebuke Jesus? the one who did everything right, the one who never sinned against anyone, the one who was always kind and compassionate, right? The only way you would do it is if you were actually enslaved by something. Uh, what are the things for you, for you that if they were taken away would make you say, no, 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 to God himself? All right, we may not actually rebuke God. Like, I don't think we do that kind of thing anymore, really. Uh, But we may forget about him for a long time. We may walk away from him and just say, you know what, like prayer is not for me anymore. Or, you know, RUF or the church is not for me anymore. Or like, you know, it'll be a long time before I think about him anymore. 
And so the reason Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, is that he can see exactly what's going on in Peter's heart, how dangerous it is. He knows that the only cure is for him to die and rise again. He has to die for Peter to get better. And it's at this point in the story that Jesus kind of draws everyone. So this has been like a private moment with Jesus and Peter, and now he kind of draws in and gives his message for all the disciples. And this is what it is. He gathers them, and he says, If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Now what is Jesus talking about? Uh, I think our tendency is to read this and think, to be a faithful Christian means to be as miserable as possible. Uh, To be a Christian, I need to go out and look for ways to be more miserable to show how serious I am. Like, I can deprive myself of things, of food, sleep. Uh, I can find ways to punish myself. Because if Jesus was willing to die, I, I can show how much more I'm willing to die. I can show how much I care by being miserable. And what I want, that is not what Jesus is talking about here. All that stuff is actually just another form of slavery to the good life. Because we're saying, like, I can make my miser- myself miserable enough for God to approve of me. To be really happy with me. It denies the power of the cross, even. It says, like, Jesus' sacrifice wasn't good enough. I have to sacrifice myself. And that's not good news. Like, the, the Christian gospel is good news. And Jesus is actually thinking much more radically than that. Um, So what does it mean to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him? Uh, If you lived in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, you would know exactly what it meant. uh, Because uh, everyone in the Roman Empire would have seen people be crucified before. And when you were crucified, you would actually carry the horizontal beam of the cross on your back uh, through the city to the place where you would be crucified. And then it would be uh, nailed to the vertical beam. And uh, so everyone knew this image, right? Because it was a somewhat common form of execution in Rome, in the Roman Empire. And what you would be thinking, so let's say you lived in the Roman Empire at this time and there's a criminal being paraded through the city carrying his cross. What you would think about that person is your life is no longer your own. Someone owns you now. Rome owns you now. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying the only way to be truly free is to be owned by me. He's saying you can devote yourself to your idea of the good life, or you can belong to me and allow me to show you the good life. And what that looks like for us, for Christians, is obedience to him. It means submission to him. Not a popular idea in our culture today. Um, what, it, what, it, what, it, what it will look like is saying, you know, this person here is hard to love, but Jesus wants me to, so I will try. Or I want to obey my body and my hormones and my appetites, but instead I will obey Jesus. Or saying, you know, I feel alone and I want to do something destructive, because it might make me feel good, but I won't because I want to follow Jesus instead. I belong to him. Uh, Or saying school, you know, school is so demanding and I feel like I have no time, but I'm not going to let school crowd out Jesus out of my life. 
or maybe this one. All these people have different expectations of me, but I will let Jesus' expectations overrule all the others. This is so hard. Like, this is the hard part because we think we know, right? Like, it's like, I think, you know, in the moment it feels right to forget about Jesus. It's terrifying to let go and let Jesus run our lives. And so we grasp for control, right? I'll study harder. I won't sleep. I'll do whatever it takes to feel good. I'll do whatever it takes to feel loved. I'll make myself look really, really good. Now, to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him is to hand over all these plans, these self-determining plans, and replace them with dependence on him, with obedience to him. Uh, to obey when it's hard, to obey when it hurts, uh, to pray rather than getting frantic and worrying all the time, uh, to serve others rather than serving yourself. Now, how can you do it? Like, it's, it's insanely hard to do. How can you do it? The good news is that Jesus goes first. Uh, he says, follow me. Like, go where I'm going. And if, if you were to kind of skip ahead to the end of the Gospel of Mark, you would see that it actually takes Jesus, you know, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, the night before he's crucified, and he actually prays there to his Father, and he says to the Father, Father, if there's any other way than me being crucified, like tomorrow, can we please do that way? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Is there any other way? And there's just silence. And so the next day he's paraded through the city carrying his cross while everyone mocks him. And he's brought to the edge of town where he's crucified. And as he's crucified, what he's doing is he's literally buying us. He's literally paying the price to release us from slavery as he's nailed to the wood. Because he knows that's the only way we'll ever be able to be truly free. Because if that guy, if Jesus owns you, if the one who would die for you owns you, you'll be able to obey even when it's hard. Like You'll be able to be resilient no matter what life throws your way because the king of the world owns you now. And he's good. It means you can be single or dating or married at 25 or married at 35 or married at 45 or never married. And you won't be overly sad or overly happy about any of those outcomes. You'll just be happy to have Jesus because the person you ultimately belong to is him. Uh, You can be an engineer or you can be a plumber or you can be unemployed or do something else. And you won't be overly happy or overly crushed by any of those outcomes because the one you work for is him. Uh, You can be rich or poor, and it won't matter because you belong to the king. Now, the proof that this actually works is Peter. You know, you might be sitting here thinking, like, okay, Lucas, that sounds great, but does it work? And the proof is Peter. uh, Because, like, the gospel of Mark is actually Peter's gospel. Many people don't know who Mark really is because we don't know much about Mark uh, because he wasn't a disciple. Uh, He was rather someone who became a Christian and started interviewing people to write his gospel. And the main person he interviewed was Peter. 
And so this is Peter's account of what happened. Now, knowing what we know about Peter, how he's obsessed with the good life prior to this, right? All he wants is to be Jesus' like right-hand man and rule the world and put his feet up. How could Peter tell a story that's so embarrassing about himself? Uh, it's because he was changed by Jesus. It didn't matter to him anymore. Uh, if you look at other accounts, of, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, several of them tell this story too. Matthew's story tells it where Jesus actually is like, Peter, like, who do people say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus actually is like, good job, Peter, you're the man. And yet when Peter tells the story, he leaves that detail out. Why would you leave that detail out? Why would you not tell that part of the story that makes you look good? Because he was changed by Jesus. How will you be able to stop living for yourself and this vision of the good life and instead love others selflessly and notice the people around you and live for the king if you're changed by Jesus? So I want to ask you, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that Jesus is? If to you Jesus is a helper or a teacher or a guide or a ticket to the good life, he will not transform you. But if he's your king, if he's your savior, if he's the one who loved you and bought you, even though you weren't particularly lovable, then that will change you forever. And you'll be able to say, the good life? (laughs) I already have the good life. It won't seem like you're giving up anything at all in comparison. And that's what makes Jesus at the end say, you know, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will gain it, will save it. So if you say, I'll follow you, Jesus, if I'll follow you, Jesus, if I can have X, Y, and Z also. And whatever X, Y, and Z is, is actually what you're following. It's actually what you're living for. But if Jesus is your goal, then he can ask anything of you and it won't seem like that much. It'll be a joy to follow him. It'll feel like true freedom to be owned by him, uh, to serve him. Uh, So let me close and pray that uh, God would work that change into our hearts. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, this is an extremely challenging text uh, for us because we just walk around in a place every day uh, with many notions of the good life that are not you, that are not life with you. And we feel that. Uh, And yet, I pray that you would set us free. I pray that we would uh, come to know the Savior who uh, buys us back so that we can be truly free, uh, so that we can be owned by you. Uh, Change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.